I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Father, this morning, I thank you for Psalm 121. I thank you for the rich depth that comes from these eight verses. God, I ask that now by your spirit, you would help us to lift our eyes to the one who can help meet all of our needs. Thank you for being a God who is near to us, who loves us no matter what. Thank you for being a God who is sovereign over all things. Spirit of God, work now in us both for your good, our good, and your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in 2001, the movie The Lord of the Rings came out. Is there any Lord of the Rings fans in here? There's a few. Okay, I'll try not to butcher this story then. If, there, if you haven't seen the movie, great. Uh, this isn't too much of a spoiler alert. Uh, but if you have seen the movie, I'll try to do my best to, uh, to, to remain faithful to the storyline. It's crazy to me that that was 22 years ago that that movie came out. But if you remember, in the very first uh, movie, um, The Fellowship of the Ring, I think what that was, Bilbo Baggins was the, kind of the first main character we see, and he's this short little hobbit with big hairy feet. And Bilbo loves to go on excursions, travels the world, uh, or Middle, Middle Earth, is that right? Travels Middle Earth, and in his travels, he finds a ring. And, and the story opens up with Bilbo wanting to retire and basically leave his village and go off to explore and just, I guess, disappear and eventually die. Uh, but this ring that Bilbo has found has a special magic power to it. When Bilbo puts it on, he disappears and no one can see him. So, so Bilbo's plan is to take, have a big party, celebrate all the things that he's done, and then pop the ring on. Bilbo disappears. It's his magic trick and sneak out of the village, take the ring off and go on his merry way. But there's a problem. The problem with this ring, right? This ring has unlimited power, and there's a certain person who wants the ring. Who, who is that person? Gollum. That's Gollum, but even, before, even more than Gollum, it's the all-seeing eye, right? That, the eye is constantly looking all over the earth for the ring because it wants the power that the ring has. And the problem here is, is that the eye, when he, when he finds the ring, he'll do whatever he takes to get control of the ring. So he creates this army of orcs that'll destroy anything in his way to go and capture the ring so that he can have unlimited power. Now, Bilbo, Bilbo's problem was, is he was so infatuated with doing this fancy trick that he didn't realize that when he put this ring on, it changed who he was. If you remember, Gollum who found the ring, what Gollum was a hobbit to begin with, but then Gollum turns into Gollum. Now, if you haven't seen the movie, you can go Google a picture of Gollum, who's this scary, creepy little thing. But that's what happens to Bilbo, is he puts the ring on inwardly, even though he doesn't understand what's happening to him, he begins to change. He missed out, because he was so wrapped up in his circumstances, he missed out on what it was doing to him. Well, one of the challenges that I believe that we face on a daily basis is that we get so consumed by our circumstances that we don't realize that they begin to shape and mold us. 
We begin to focus all of our efforts and our energies on solving our crises or our circumstances that we miss what God has in store for us. Well, the main point that I think the psalmist has in Psalm 121 and that God has for us is this, is to take our eyes off of our circumstances and focus them on the one who can help. Our, our mission today, the thing I hope we walk away with, is to take our eyes off our circumstances and focus them on the one who can help. Now, I think this passage kind of breaks down into two parts. There's, there's verses one and two, that's part one, and we're going to see in that the God who helps. Uh, and then past that, verses three through eight, we see the God who keeps. And that's, that's just a two-point sermon, but point two actually has four subpoints. So, so it's actually a five-point sermon, maybe? I don't know. Uh, so point one, God who helps and God who keeps. Now, let's jump into this. Point one, God who helps. Look back with me to, to Psalm 121, verse one. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Now, remember what the Psalms of Ascent are. If you weren't here last week when David opened this up, Psalms of Ascent, this is what the Israelites would have said or quoted or sang as they ascended up the mountain to Jerusalem uh, for, for their feast. They usually went up, there was about three feasts that they would go up on, uh, and they would say these as they began their climb. Now, when I was a sophomore in high school, I had the privilege of going to Israel, and we got to spend two weeks over there. In week one, we spent uh, doing some mission work. In week two, we spent touring the country. In the northern part of Israel, where is the Sea of Galilee, is beautiful, just awesome ag agricultural land. I could live there in a heartbeat. It is lovely. Kind of reminds me of California. Perfect weather. Really nice. But then you drift into southern Israel where Jerusalem is and the Dead Sea is and the terrain changes. Okay. So I, I have found some pictures from my trip. I was going to throw these up there. This is standing at the Dead Sea. Uh, and this is actually looking towards En Gedi. Uh, and there's a story in the Bible where David goes and hides in a cave and Saul comes in to relieve himself. And David is just like sitting there waiting. Well, that's En Gedi. That's where that takes place. Okay. Okay, so that's in Getty. That's what the mountains would have looked like. Uh, go to the next one. Um, this is up on top of um, Masada, which is, there's an old story. We're not going to go into all that. I just kind of want you guys to get an idea of what they were looking at. We'll go to the next one. This is just what the mountains look like. This is standing at the bottom, looking up. This, I, I think I took this picture out the bus while we were driving up the mountains to Jerusalem. Okay, go to the next one. This is a picture that we're ascending. You kind of see the slope there going up. We're driving up the hill. This is just a village of people. Uh, this is up on top of Masada looking back towards the Dead Sea. So I, I, I put all this, I show you these so you can get in your mind a picture of what the Israelites are doing. They're standing at the base of this mountain, heading up towards Jerusalem to go worship the Lord, and they're fixing to ascend those mountains. Now, those mountains are big mountains. And, and they present a challenge in and of themselves, but it's not just climbing the mountain that is dangerous. The mountains were where, as my kids would say, the mountains are where the bad guys hide. That's where trouble lay, lie. So, so the mountains were a challenge, but they also presented a risk of loss of life and property. So amidst this psalmist standing at the base of the mountains, looking up, knowing the journey that lays ahead, the trials and the tribulations and the danger that's in front of him, he sees all that and what does he say? He says, I lift my eyes up to the hills for where does my help come from? He says, look up, look up to the one who sits on top of all the mountains. He can see God from up above in his holy, holy place. He can see down below and he can see the easiest way to get up. He, can, he knows what troubles lie ahead. He knows what difficulties are behind. 
God sees his people and he knows. If you remember back in Exodus chapter two, there's a story there, uh, Exodus 2, 23 through 25, I'll just read it. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God saw and God knew. This same God, the same God of Exodus, looks down on his people ascending the mountain to worship him and knows. He knows what they need, he knows what's ahead, and he knows what's behind. Now we're gonna spend the majority of this sermon, the majority of this time, talking about who this God is, because that's what the majority of this psalm is about. But before we do that, as I studied this this week, something kind of hit me. What happens if the psalmist hadn't lifted his eyes up? Where would, they, where would they have been? Psalmist is beginning his journey, and instead of saying, I lift up my eyes to the hills, where are his eyes focused? Well, they're on the path in front of him. Now, this past week, we went with my wife's family up to Red River, and I carried a couple suitcases up a couple flights of stairs. And by the time I got to the top flight of stairs, I was looking for oxygen. I was worn out. I can't imagine how the psalmist and this group of people that potentially are with him are feeling looking up these mountains knowing they've got a journey to go on. They've got a hike to make. And if all they're doing is looking down and never looking at their goal, what happens to them? Well, a couple things. They're probably gonna grow weary from a long journey. They're gonna miss out on the beauty that's around them. They're going to likely become overwhelmed with fear about all the danger that awaits. They're going to forget the purpose of what they're doing. Ultimately, they're going to become anxious, fearful, overwhelmed, and potentially even paralyzed from moving forward. So what does he do? What does the psalmist do? He takes his eyes off the path and he looks up to the one who sees all and knows all. I think there's a couple points of application for us from this. First was that the psalmist recognized that he needed help. He knew that if he just walked this journey alone, hiking up these mountains, maybe you're a mountain climber, I'm not a mountain climber, maybe that, that turns you on. But if you're not, that journey is something that becomes hard. The psalmist recognized that. And it causes me to ask the question, where do you need help? Where do you need help? Now we live in West Texas, the best Texas as some people say, and we don't need help. We're self-sufficient, right? We're happy to help, but we're not the kind of people that need help. Maybe if we change that question up a little bit, maybe if we asked it this way, what are the circumstances in your life right now that are weighing on your mind? What are the things that you think about most? Parents, grandparents, maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your grandchildren. Maybe, maybe you have a difficult child and you don't know how to parent them. You need help. Maybe you've lost a child. Maybe the grief and sadness from that is weighing on you. You need help. Maybe it's not your kids. Maybe it's your siblings, children, brothers and sisters, parents, adults. Maybe, maybe it's your brother and sister. Maybe you have a problem between you and them. You need help. Maybe your siblings are going through something that is unthinkable, is imagine, unimaginable. You need help. 
Maybe your parents are getting older and you're having to deal with uncertainty moving forward. Maybe you're a boss or an employee who's concerned about your job or your business and what you're supposed to do with it. Maybe your marriage is in a bad place. Maybe you're in a relationship you shouldn't be in. Maybe you're about to start a new school year with a bunch of people you don't know. There's not a person in this room who is not in need of help in some way. This psalm is for all of us. And Spurgeon says, what we need is help. Help powerful, efficient, constant. We need a very present help in trouble. So we need help. No one has escaped that. But here's where the harder question is. The harder question is, is what or who are you looking to for help? One commentator, he noted that as, as Christians, as church-going people, we tend to acknowledge that God is sovereign and that he is all-powerful and all-wise. He knows everything. He sees everything. But functionally, we live a worried life. We don't trust him. So in your worry and in your fear, in your anxiety or grief or sadness, where do you run to for relief? Maybe it's alcohol, maybe it's pornography, maybe it's Netflix, maybe it's social media. Maybe it's not a vice, maybe it's a virtue. I read a quote from an old biblical scholar, Alfred Edersheim. It's a great name, I thought. Um, and I have this on the screen. It's kind of long, so I wanted you all to see it. He says, my help comes from the Lord, not only when seemingly there is no outward help from men or otherwise, but also and especially when all seems to go well with me. When an abundance of friends and help are at hand, for then surely I am most danger of making an arm of flesh my trust and thus reaping its curse, or else saying to my soul, take thine ease in finding the destruction which attends such folly. Friendship is absolutely a gift from God and one of the ways in which he does help us, but if we're looking to one another for salvation instead of support, or if we're looking to ourselves, what we've done is we've trusted in an arm of flesh, not the help of the Lord. So church, this morning let me ask you, where or to what are you looking for help? Maybe another way to explain this is, is that when you look for other things to help you, what you're ultimately doing is you're functionally making those things a savior. So we were up in Red River, and Walker and Sawyer and I went fishing this week. And it was kind of creek kind of down from our cabin. And we were walking, and we went across the creek and over up on this road because there was a new little spot we wanted to try. And it was kind of like a, about a, I don't know, 10-foot little kind of drop-off down to the edge of the creek. And so I had the boys with me, and I had a fishing pole, and we just kind of slid down the edge of that little drop-off to, to go fishing for a little bit. And so we, we fished for what felt like 30 seconds to me, and Sawyer was ready to go. He was done. Uh, he wanted to throw rocks in the water. Walker was ready to keep fishing for a minute. So I said, no, let's fish for a little bit longer, bud. It's okay. You got it. And, and no, he was done. He was ready to go. So Sawyer turned, and he started to go back up that little drop-off, 10-foot drop-off maybe. Um, and, and as he started to climb up that, it was, a wa it was washed out. So it was really loose dirt. So he began to step. And you know what happens when you step on loose dirt, right? Your feet slip out from underneath you. So he looks over and a branch had fallen from a dead tree. And he grabs a hold of the branch. And you know what happens when he grabs a hold of the branch? He slips, falls backward. Walker is a good big brother, sees him. He goes to help Sawyer. But the problem is, is even though Walker's bigger and older and stronger and smarter, Walker's still standing in loose dirt. 
So as he tries to help his brother push him up, Walker begins to slip, and Sawyer begins to slip. And then eventually Sawyer hits his knee, and he loses it, and he cries. Church, running to something else to help you in your time of need is like grabbing a hold of a loose branch to pull yourself up off the mountainside. You may feel safe for a second, but that moment you begin to pull, you fall. It won't save you. Having help from a friend, even if he's older, wiser, stronger, smarter, wealthier, whatever, it may be an encouragement. But at the end of the day, his feet are in as loose a soil as yours are. Thomas Fuller said of this verse, he said, in the agony of a troubled conscience, always look upwards unto a gracious God to keep your soul steady. For looking downward on yourself, you shall find nothing but what will increase your fear. Infinite sins, good deeds few and imperfect. It is not your faith, but God's faithfulness that you must reply on, rely on. Whether vice or virtue, if you're not looking to the Lord, then you're using something else as a functional savior, and it will fail you. From where does your help come? The psalmist tells himself, and he tells us, he says, look up, look to the Lord. The word the Lord here is the name Yahweh. It's the covenantal name of God. He is the one who draws near to his people. He sees his people and he feels what they feel. He remembers his covenant and keeps his promises. I looked through the Psalter, the whole book of Psalms, and I, I, I just saw where is the name the Lord used and how does God describe himself uh, in this book? He is good and forgiving. He hears and answers the pleas of his children. There is none like him, for he does great and wondrous things. He is the God of truth and righteousness. He is the Lord of hope. His steadfast love towards us is unending. He is merciful and gracious. He is always faithful. He's slow to anger. He's the God who helps. The title the psalmist uses here shows the nearness and the love of God. But he doesn't just call him Yahweh. What does he say in the next line? He is the Lord who created the heaven and the earth. He's omnipotent. It's a big fancy word for meaning he is all powerful. Genesis 1 shows us that God spoke with his very words, creation into being. When was the last time you said something and it just happened? God with his breath created everything. Nehemiah 9.6 says, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. Nehemiah shows he's the creator, but he's also the preserver. He's the sustainer of all creation. Romans 11 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. All things exist from him. All things exist for him and all things exist to him. He created everything. Now, if you go, if you go make something, if you go build something, you, you exist outside of it, right? But God's not that way. While God is all powerful and he can make everything, he doesn't just exist outside of his creation, he exists inside his creation. He's omnipresent, right? So Psalm 139, verses seven through 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. 
If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light be about me night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day for the darkness is as light with you. Church, there is nowhere you can go that God does not see you. And since he created everything for his pleasure by the word of his mouth, and he upholds all creation by his will, and he exists both inside and outside of his creation, do you know what this means? This means that he's sovereign. Nothing happens that he's unaware of. He's not surprised. He's not overwhelmed. He's not afraid of anything that might come up. Because he's sovereign, you can trust him. And regardless of what happen, what's happening, you can know he's good. But not only is he sovereign, he's, he's also good. That name Yahweh is a covenantal name. We talked about that. It insinuates a deep personal relationship. The Lord cares for you as a good father for his children, as a good spouse for his wife. As a sovereign and good father, then you can trust that his timing is perfect. We walk through circumstances in life and we pray and we say, God, would you fix this? God, would you help me? God, I want to experience your presence. It's been so long. God, what's taking so long? Can you ever think of a time when you've wondered where he was? Spurgeon said, help is on the road and it will not fail to reach us in due time. For he who sends it to us was never known to be late. His timing is perfect. Always. This is the Lord who helps. He is near. As we teach our kids in Kids Zone, He is all powerful, all wise, and in all places at once. So, church, take your eyes off of your circumstances and focus them on the one who sees everything, who knows everything, who is sovereign over all things. He is good, and He works for your good. That's the Lord who helps. The second thing we see is the God who keeps. We can take our eyes off of our circumstances because we have a God who keeps. Now, I mentioned this earlier. I've broken this down into four subpoints, and they're all built off of the God who keeps because we're going to see that word here used in the next five verses. So verse three, he will not let your foot be moved. We see a God who keeps in any place. Now, one important observation real quick before we move on with the rest of this passage. What was the tense that the psalmist used in verses one and two? I'm not good at English, so I'm doing my best here. He said, I, right? It's first person. But notice all of a sudden in verse three, the tense changes. He, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will not slumber or sleep. What, what's going on in this moment? Well, there's kind of a disagreement among theologians. Some think that it's the psalmist who's now told himself what you're going to do. He's now preaching to himself saying, you can trust what you believe. Some people think it's the psalmist speaking to himself. Others think that there's probably a group of people who are ascending the mountain with the psalmist. And so the psalmist says, I will lift my eyes to the hills. And the rest of the people are standing back here saying, hey, you can trust that God. So which is it? Is it the psalmist preaching to himself or is it a group of people encouraging the psalmist to carry on? I don't know. Honestly, 
I don't think it matters. I don't think we have to resolve that this morning because either way you go, there is really important application. Have you ever caught yourself driving down the road and having a conversation with yourself? Does anybody else in the room do that? Kyle, thank you. Anybody? Okay. I'm driving down the road a couple weeks ago. Uh, this is a while back. I, I, okay, I do this all the time. Walker's in the back seat, and I'm rehearsing a conversation that I need to have with somebody that was going to be a little confrontational. And Walker goes, Dad, what are you doing? Who are you talking to? I'm like, nobody. I know it's weird. Just talking to myself, bud. Don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. But you know what's scary? I caught Walker doing the same thing a while back, so... He'll talk to himself too. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. No, Paul Tripp says, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. Whether you realize it or not, you are in an unending conversation with yourself. And the things you say to you about you are formative of the way that you live. You are constantly preaching to yourself some kind of gospel. You're preaching to yourself the anti-gospel of your own righteousness and power and wisdom, or you're preaching to yourself the true gospel of deep spiritual need and sufficient grace. You're preaching to yourself an anti-gospel of aloneness and inability, or you're preaching to yourself the true gospel of the presence, provision, and power of an ever-present Christ. So if the psalmist is preaching to himself in these verses... What kind of gospel is he preaching? I think he's preaching one of dependency and sufficiency, one of depend, his need of help, depending on God to do it, but also recognizing God's sufficiency to meet every need that he has. So, so if he's preaching to himself, he's preaching to himself a gospel of dependency and sufficiency. But on the other hand, what if it's someone else speaking to him? What if it's a group of people? Well, I think the thing that that shows us is the psalmist is experiencing his needs in community. He's not walking alone. You weren't created to live a life of isolation. The Lone Ranger Christian, we've said this over and over, doesn't exist anywhere in the scriptures. You were created, you were saved to live in community. So, so the needs and the help that you have, you need to experience it in a group of community but what kind of community and what message is the community preaching to you that you're in? Are they saying, hey, you can trust your theology. You can trust the God who sees all things. Or are they running to you saying, hey, I can help you. I can take care of that. I can save you from that. What kind of community have you surrounded yourself with? Are you existing in the community that God has saved you to and to be a part of? Or are you existing in your own community outside of the church? What kind of gospel are you preaching to yourself? You may not have raised your hand, but you talk to yourself every day. I know you do. You're like me. We do it. What are you telling yourself? Are you telling, are you, telling you the truths of the word of God? Or are you preaching your own self-sufficiency? So the psalmist or the group, whoever it is, says, he will not let your foot be moved. Now, Think back with me to those pictures that I showed you back at the beginning, right? Think about those mountains and climbing those. Think about Sawyer trying to climb up this little 10-foot drop-off. If you're a mountain climber, then what happens as you begin to climb, right? You've got rocky terrain. Your feet begin to slip. So, so is the psalmist saying here, good news, if you just look to God, he's going to make sure that your feet don't slip, that you've got sure footing every step of the way? Well, probably not. It's probably not what the psalmist is saying. 
There's a couple other places in the Psalms where we see that the Lord ref, or, or the psalmist will ref, um, reflect on sure footing. And really what, what they're saying in those moments is that God will not let his children fall flat on, his fa- on their face. So like, I believe it's in Psalm 66, the psalmist says, kingdoms will fail, but the children of the Lord will stand forever. Though the terrain may get treacherous, the Lord will be there to help the psalmist navigate it successfully. So here's the thing for us. It doesn't matter where you go in life, regardless of your journey. If you're God's children, he won't let you fall on your face. It may feel that way sometimes. You may feel like you're alone. You may have hurts that cut deep, but the sovereign Lord will not let your foot slip. He'll keep you in place. He, he will stabilize you. If you've been at Liberty before, we've, we've gone through what's called the four stabilizing truths. These aren't ours. Or this, we've got these from somebody else. But as I think about climbing a mountain and foot slipping, I think the four stabilizing truths are what help stabilize us. So, so this is what they are. They're up on the screen. God's love for me is unchanging. No matter what you do or don't do, God's love for you is unchanging. God's purpose for me is Christ-likeness. No matter how good or how hard things may get, God's using those circumstances to shape you more into Jesus. God's word for me is the right answer. Do you need help? Do you need guidance? Go to the all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful God and listen to what he has to say. God's grace for me is sufficient. He won't let you slip. He won't let you fall flat on your face. When things do feel like they're crumbling around you, you can grab a hold of these truths, truths built from the word of God and know that no matter where you are in your journey, no matter what's going on, he will keep you. So we see a God who keeps us in any place. Then the next thing we see is the God who keeps us no matter the time. Pick up back in verse three. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Now, this journey that the psalmist was on would have taken some time. I told you I carried a couple suitcases up some stairs and was dog tired. I, I wore out quickly. We went on a little excursion fishing and kind of walked up, I don't know, a couple hundred yards. Wore out, tired. How do you think the psalmist or the group of people with the psalmist and a whole caravan of people hauling all their stuff up the mountain for a, a little bit of time, how do you think they felt on this journey? They were exhausted. They'd have to be. I know I'd want to take a nap. But God never grows weary. He never gets tired. He never needs a break. He is constantly engaged with his creation. Think back to Bilbo Baggins and that eye. I don't know if you've seen Lord of the Rings, this makes sense to you. If you hasn't, it doesn't. But that eye is just constantly roaming, looking for the ring. But God's eye is not constantly roaming, looking for one thing. God in his omniscience and omnipotence sees all things at once. And he's constantly watching them. For six to nine hours out of every 24 hours, we are disconnected from the world. You go to sleep every night and you have no idea what's happening unless your kids walk in and say they need help, right? You are dead to the world. God is not that way. He's always tuned in to everything. There's no time of day or night in which the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, is not watching and caring for you. 
So what do, we, what do we do with that? The fact that God is watching you always. Do something that we don't normally do. Grab your hymnal real quick. We're not gonna sing. We're not gonna sing. Grab your hymnal. There's one that should be in the seat in front of you. I want you to flip over to song number 624. This was my, my granddad's favorite hymn. Song number 624, his eyes on the sparrow. Again, we're not gonna sing. I just want to pick up in verse two. I want to read this, but I think you having your eyes on it's helpful. Let not your heart be troubled. His tender words I hear. And resting on his goodness, I lose my doubt and fear. Though by the path he leadeth, but one step I may see. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. Church, if your hearts are troubled, listen to the tender word of God. Rest on his goodness, and when you do, your doubts and fears can fade away. You can trust the path that he's leading you on, even if you can only see one step in front of you. And because that is true, what can you do? I sing. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free for his eyes on the sparrow and I know he watches me. Christian, you can sing because the creator of the universe sees you. He loves you, he leads you and he is for you. You can walk through loss and gain, joy and despair, high and low, knowing that the same God who gives is the one who takes away. And he does this for his glory and your good. So like Job, because he is good and works for our good, we can say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, this point carries with it a pretty great warning. Something that's kind of scary. Back at verse four. Behold, he keeps Israel. Who does God keep? He keeps Israel. Now, who's Israel? Israel's God's chosen people. What about those who are not God's chosen people? Does God keep them? I read a book uh, a long time ago called Questioning Evangelism. Uh, it's about this author is basically telling his story. He got saved, and uh, one day he got a call from his mom, and somebody passed away. I think it was his uncle, but I can't remember. And, and the mom's, hey, I wanted you to know, Uncle so-and-so passed away, and, uh, but, but he's gone on to a better place. He's gone on to a better place. And the author of the book worked up courage in that moment and finally said, Mom, how do you know that? How do you know he's gone on to a better place? And, and the mom, kind of startled by the question, just stopped for a second. She'd never really thought about that platitude, that saying, right? Oh, so-and-so died, but he's gone on to a better place. All's well. Friends, this morning you need to hear the warning that the psalmist shares. God does not keep everyone. Not everyone goes to a better place. He only keeps those whom he has called. And you are only called if you've put your faith in the finished work of Christ. Have you acknowledged that you need help? Yes, your circumstances may be good or bad. And yeah, you need help in that. 
But where you really need help is the fact that you were created to live in a perfect relationship with the creator of the universe. You were created to walk with him and talk with him just like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. But because of your sin, you were separated from him. So God in his kindness gave up his son. He gave up his son to live the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. And when he did so, when he died, he took on the wrath of God towards sin so that now we might live in relationship with him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus lived the life you should have lived? Do you believe that your sin separates you from God? That's where your greatest need is. Outside of Christ, you will not be kept. Outside of Christ, all of these heartwarming truths that we have meditated on this morning don't apply to you. God gave up Jesus so that he could keep you. All you must do is repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So what are you waiting on? If Christ is not Lord of your life, if you have not claimed his work on the cross, his life, and his resurrection, what are you waiting on? If you're outside of Christ, then I want to urge you to come see me or Will today after the service, and we would love to share with you the good news of God's redemption. So we have a God who keeps you in any place, no matter the time, and next, the third point, regardless of the season. Verse five, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Now remember, Jerusalem is up on top of this mountainous desert. The sun beating down on it, how does it feel? Scorching hot. Would have worn them out. But at night, with that moon, what happens to the temperatures? It drops. It gets cold. It gets dangerous. So here the psalmist is saying, the Lord is your shade on your right hand. He's carrying right there the idea of protection. And the sun shall not strike you by day or the moon by night. What he's carrying, ideas, the, carrying there is the idea of relief. This shade and this protection from harm, it enables the psalmist to continue to be active, strengthened by the Lord, to go beyond what he might suppose are his limits. This relief, this protection, when is it there? Day and night. Day and night make up all time. Thus, the ever-present protection never ceases. So God's protection for you is constant. Always, day and night. Summer, winter, fall and spring, the God of the universe constantly is offering relief from trials and tribulations. But how? How does God offer us relief? How does God offer us protection? I had this conversation with my wife last night and asked her, what do you think? Well, there's a couple ways that I think that God offers protection. One is just through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. When God saves you, he gives you his spirit to convict you and keep you from sin. That's protection. That's God keeping you from things that will kill you. The other way is, is actual literal protection. So there's a story of some missionaries. Actually, there's quite a few stories of missionaries that this has happened with. Some stories of some missionaries in Southeast Asia. And uh, they, were mis- they were ministering to some indigenous people. And uh, the locals didn't like them. And so one night the local tribe was going to come kill them and destroy their camp. And the missionaries knew about it. So they just stayed up all night praying, God, protect us. God, do your will. God, protect us. And the tribe came down to kill them, but they didn't. Next day they woke up. They were spared. All was well. 
About a year or so later, the chief of that tribe had gotten saved. And he came to the missionaries and he said, I want you to know, I was going to kill you about a year ago. And they said, well, we had heard that that was going to happen, but why didn't you? What caused you to stop? He said, well, when we descended on the village, we saw the man with the flaming sword standing outside the camp. So sometimes God offers literal protection. What about relief? How do we experience relief in the Lord? I had this conversation with Will last night, and he made the point that this has to do with our perspective. What we tend to do is we tend to look at God based off of our circumstances, right? So we, we, say, we say, life is hard, so I must not be walking in the will of God, right? Or uh, we'll say, hey, it rained on my farm, but it didn't hail, so I got to be living right, right? That's, that's kind of our, our just things we say. But that's the inverse of how it's supposed to be. Rather, we should look at our circumstances based off of who we know God to be. Life gets hard. We get a hailstorm. We lose a child. We have a parent that's challenging. We have a sibling that's going through trials. But we know God to be omniscient, knowing everything. We know him to be omnipotent, all-powerful. We know him to be omnipresent everywhere, and we know him to be good. So we can trust that regardless of how bleak or good our circumstances are, God is working for our good and his glory. When you trust in God's character, you can find relief from your circumstances. No matter what you walk into, no matter how hard it gets, you can say, you know what? I trust God. I trust him to be wise. I trust him to be good. I trust him to be powerful. I trust him to be working on my behalf. And because he's doing that, no matter how ugly this is going to get or how hard this is going to be, he's good. And you can be relieved as you step into that. So we worship a God who keeps us in any place, no matter the time, regardless of the season. And finally, from now until forevermore. Last two verses of our passage. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. There's a couple of quick observations I want to make of, of these last two verses. First is in verse seven, the Lord will keep you from all evil. When we read that verse and on face value, we begin to go, oh, okay. So I just trust in God. I'm not gonna have to deal with any evil, right? Like there's not, it's not a problem. Sweet. I'll follow God. So I don't have to deal with evil. Unfortunately, no. This protection, this keeping, it doesn't mean that the traveler may never stub his toe doesn't mean that he won't get injured, doesn't mean he won't suffer, and it doesn't even mean that he won't die. It means that God's purposes can't be thwarted. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He will watch over us throughout this whole life, and ultimately, he will take us to glory. So, evil may be in front of us, but God will keep us. Now, notice how the psalmist keeps reusing that word. The Lord will keep. We've seen it a lot since verse three. And here in verse seven and into verse eight, we see it three times in a row. The Lord will keep you from evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in. What's going on there? Most commentators point out that this three time, threefold use repetitiveness there is, is pointing to the Trinity actually. That it's showing the perfection of God's keeping. But what does that mean? What does it mean for God to keep us? 
Well, Spurgeon, I think, is helpful, and I think I have this quote on the screen. God is the soul keeper of the soul. Our soul is kept from the dominion of sin, the infection of error, the crush of despondency, the puffing up of pride. It's kept from the world, the flesh, and the devil, kept for holier and greater things, kept in the love of God, kept into the eternal kingdom and glory. What can harm a soul that is kept of the Lord? That's what it means to be kept by the Lord. It means that he took on all the sin, the wickedness, sadness, death, brokenness, heartache, evil of the world, so you could be kept safe in his arms. If you're in Christ, you can face whatever future, regardless of its challenge and difficulties, with confidence, because he will hold you fast. When, your fe- when you fear your faith will fail, Christ will hold you fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold you fast. When your love is often cold, he will hold you fast. Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are kept, you are held, you are safe, you are secure in Christ, what can harm you? If you're in Jesus, you're safe. And how long will he keep you? How long will Christ keep you? From now until forevermore. He keeps you going out and you're coming in. That's ancient literature speak for how our lives change on a day-to-day basis, right? I wake up in the morning and I go out to work and then I come back in at night and I go to sleep and then I wake up the next morning and I go out to work and I do something different than I did the day before and then at night I come back in. But you know what? God is constant. He's eternal and he's always keeping you. He's always holding you. I'll quote Spurgeon one more time. When we go out in the morning to labor and come home at even tide to rest, Jehovah shall keep us. When we go out in youth to begin life and come in at the end to die, we shall experience the same keeping. Our exits and our entrances are under one protection. Under the aegis of such a promise, we may go on pilgrimage without trembling and venture into battle without dread. None are so safe as those whom God keeps and none so much in danger as the self-secure. Students, we stand on the edge of August looking into a new school year. He will keep you. Parents, as you deal with children, he will keep you. As you go to work, as you mom, as you dad, as you grow old, as you get close to the end of your life, he will keep you. So church, as we conclude this morning, I'm going to ask Mark and Will to come back on up. As we stand in the middle of life's circumstances, the ultimate question for you is what are you looking to for help? Are you trusting in your own ability to overcome? Are you grabbing on to things or people that will only fail you? Or like the psalmist, have you recognized your need for help? There is a God who will keep you in any place, no matter the time, regardless of the season, for now and forevermore. All you gotta do is ask. There is a God who helps because he loves you and desires to be near you. When we take our eyes off of our circumstances and we focus on the one who can help, do you know what those circumstances become? 
they just become opportunities for you to see the character of God, to see his goodness, to see his kindness, to see his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence. You can carry on in this pilgrimage, this battle, singing because you're happy, singing because you're free. You can face trials and tribulations with confidence, trust, and faith, knowing that our sovereign God is in control and that he is working all things out for our good and his glory. Church, this morning, take your eyes off your circumstances and focus them on the one who can help. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for keeping us. No matter how we try to run, how we look to other things, God, you're faithful. When we're faithless, you're faithful. Thank you for holding us dear and near to you. Thank you for loving us, for seeing us, for being near to us. God, I pray for those in this room this morning that are struggling, that need help, that are walking through difficult things. God, I pray that they would look to you and God, that they would find the keeper of their soul, the one who can help and who can fix their needs. God, I pray for those who are not kept by you this morning. Spirit of God, as you work in their heart, I pray that you would grant them the ability to submit to you. God, to repent of their sin and to believe in you. God, I pray that for all of us, we would see your word and we would see you as good. God, help us to grow into the image of Jesus because we look to him, the one who died for us so that we could be kept by you. Father, you're good. We have much to be grateful for. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand and sing.